Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And I am producer Bill. And today, we're talking about the greatest sidekicks and supporting characters in pop culture. Some of the most important characters in pop culture, because they're there to let you know just how great the hero is. That is, okay, let's seize on that right off the biz at, because straight up, when I was writing my first screenplays, I just, everybody was the main guy. I didn't have nobody to like watch the main guy do nothing. So mm. then it just looked like he was this hyper-competent person surfing through the story, which I thought made him cool. But any studio reader was like, this motherfucker doesn't even know what conflict is. And he certainly isn't selling me on this guy being a hero by having everything work out like this. You got to have somebody there to show, oh, look how dope that was. Uh, a big a big example of that, the guys in the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, they're not necessarily you know, uh, supporting characters, but in that scene, they support him and they show you that he's the best with their cowardice, with their with their avarice. They show you that he's dope. If he did that scene by himself, it wouldn't have the same impact. You need Alfred Molina in that opening scene. You need mm-hmm. him. Uh, and, and by the way, short round, I mean – Ooh, who who doesn't think Short Round is one of the great sidekicks of all time? Dude, uh, dude, you're coming in hot with that shit because I think <laughs> Short Round might be like on the Mount Rushmore of sidekicks. I mean, if more people felt the way I think we do about Indiana Jones too, I think people think of it as this weaker, darker version of the other movies, which is true. Yeah, But I feel like it is its own chapter. It happened before the event, the events of the first movie. So, and and obviously before the events of the third. So, I just feel like it ha- it's a different world. You know what I'm saying? It's it's the world that Indiana Jones in the first movie graduated out of. Yes, if you dig what I'm saying. One hundred percent. And by the way, I think Short Round does something great as far as sidekicks go. He gives Indiana Jones a lot of shit. Yes, you know what I mean. Like he is his own person divorced from Indiana Jones and they're a little bit like oil and water. And like, that is just such a classic dynamic. And I don't know why it works for me when it's short round. And then I watch something like the Witcher with that bard character. And I want to throw that guy into the sun. (laughs) It just doesn't get me at all. There's something about, uh, no, there's something about like that fantasy trope of the bard it just feels so stock. It's like, okay, you got to have a regular human who is ostensibly there to sing the songs of your tales, but he's also going to be annoying and you guys are going to have a gruff antagonistic relationship with each other. And it's like, oh, I, I don't know why that grates on me as badly as it does, but there's something there that I just don't like. Okay, Ron, defend the bard. Why is I mean, the bard important? Well, he's funny. Um, is, he? I mean, he is he? <laughs> um, two, it makes, I think it actually makes the Witcher funnier. The way he responds to the bard is awesome and funny. And actually, probably funnier than the bard, but it wouldn't be as funny without the bard being there to say the dumb shit that he says. But well, also, okay. let Don't... me also defend that I probably really enjoy... Toss a coin to you, Witcher. Oh, Valley, you're plenty. That's probably a big portion of why I enjoy that. So who knows? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. I know that song was like hot for a minute, which might might just be me being a hipster and being like, oh, everybody likes this. <laughs> um, <laughs> that said, though, I do think there's something that's like a little bit hack about like, oh, this is the joke setup guy. Like he's yeah. just here to set up jokes. You know, yeah. I don't necessary know. too, though. Yeah. Like, you got interactions. Yeah. Well, maybe arguably. Well, it's funny that even this early in the conversation, we're having a discussion about the value of certain, you know, uh, supporting characters and how they interact with the main character because they are a part of setting the scene, Mm -hmm. thus making the entire story real. So if you don't buy somebody or don't really like somebody's supporting character, it can take you out of something. You know what I mean? 100%. And I mean, I I think this goes back to something that we talk about a lot, which is, for me anyway, a supporting character needs their own motivation and arguably character arc. And I think one of the things that rubs me the wrong way about like the bard character, not even necessarily in The Witcher, but almost just as a trope, is it so often feels like, oh, this is just somebody who's hanging out, being a piece of shit and just decides I'm going to tag along on this adventure because I ain't got anything better to do. And like right away, I'm fucking out. I'm just out. I, I'm not buying that Dungeons and Dragons ass setup. Like I just don't like it. <laughs> no, you probably, it got deep, Bill. That's probably your weakness, your lack of enjoyment of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, perhaps. So, yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. But I do think I do think supporting characters and sidekicks in particular do need to exist as like whole separate people. Mm. And I think some of the weakest examples are when they are just there to service the main character's story. And I think probably the weakest examples are when they are just there to service making the main character look good. It just needs to be conversations between two real people. And I think often that doesn't happen the way these things are written. Um, With that being said then, how do you feel about C-3PO? Honestly, like I was always more of an R2-D2 man myself. It's it's great that you say that, by the way, because R2-D2 feels like he has a mission all of the time. Mm-hmm. C-3PO mm. is just there literally to be the funny, uh, uh, not do anything. Because I, I, I don't even want to call him a sidekick because he's with C-3PO, but he doesn't have a purpose. And it's interesting that you said that because I, I always liked R2-D2 better. I, I couldn't put my finger on why I disliked him or not disliked him because I still enjoy him. I just yeah. don't like him as much as I feel like I like R2-D2. And I guess that's because R2-D2 does seem to have his own specific goals. And C-3PO's only goal is to sit next to R2-D2 and not die. Hmm. Well, if I can put my nerd, my extremely nerd glasses on for a second, C-3PO and R2-D2 come from a long literary tradition that I think goes back to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in Hamlet, as given to Mm. us by Shakespeare. And Mm. I actually love that trope of let's have a character or two who really have no bearing on the main character's story or like the main plot but just by circumstance, they happen to be there through everything. And we get a chance to see through a common man's eyes 
just these two people sort of discussing what it is that's going on around them. Obviously, R2-D2 in particular is a little bit more integral to the plot of Star Wars than Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but I think that's where George Lucas was coming from when he created those characters. And you actually see that a lot through Star Wars. I think self, you know, they're conscious of the fact that they're doing it, but like in The Mandalorian at the end of season one, you've got those couple of stormtroopers who are just kind of like shooting the shit as a setup to the big battle. Um, you know, you they often are sort of just including little bits and pieces of life outside the main story to just give you a sense of like, this is a bigger, more lived in world. And I think those types of characters, when they're used correctly, really help give that sense. They fill out the margins of what should be like a a fully realized setting. That's a great point. Yeah. I think they also are there on some level to, it's so funny that that uh, George Lucas chose to double up on slavery. Like there's <laughs> there's robots, and then there's actual human slaves that you control. So we got double we got double slavery. Yeah, and I it just it's so funny he chose to to double up on that. However, it's funny that in the very first movie there isn't even mention of that shit at all. So it is that the basically in the original conception of the story, regardless of what he said, he wrote the book of the wills and all this bullshit. I think in the original conception of the story, I don't know that there was like slave slaves like that. I think he meant for the droids to be the slaves in the original conception of it before he broadened it. He meant for the droids to be the slaves and, and that's take take slave out of it because it's such a loaded word for everybody. Everybody's so, so uh, weird about it. But like, let's say the lowest class of person, the proletariat, the, whatever you want to say, those were the people who were affected by the greater cosmic stuff and but they were such players and non-players in it that like a major character could put a message inside of one of them mm-hmm. and his mission was to get it somewhere but it's like without that you wouldn't be involved in this at all because you would be of no service to anybody so it's like that he's, he's integral but also and and has this seeming agency but it's like how much agency does a robot doing the job it's told to do have right so we, we you know he's literally a garbage can yeah, <laughs> literally and figuratively, but <laughs> but his tenacity at f- fulfilling his mission yeah. is interesting. You know what I mean? Well, I, it's interesting because R two D two and C three PO are kind of a mashup of everything we've been talking about so far. Where C three PO really is a little bit of a take on the Bard character, where he's really just there to set up jokes and provide a running commentary on what's going on. Whereas R2-D2 is more of the fully realized, like I have my own motivation, my own mission. I am integral to the story. So it is a weird mashup where they're like a little bit Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, a little bit, you know, traveling bard and a little bit sidekick. It's Mm -hmm. like you get all of that in that pairing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm glad they came up this early, dude, because they, it's it, you can really search long and wide. Like they're they're the Abbott and Costello of the space movie that is revered by everybody. Yeah, you know. Yeah. See, and that's that's interesting too because my for, first foray into the Universal Monsters was Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, which to this day I still have a real soft spot for. And there is something awesome about entering any sort of fantastical world, be it actual fantasy or sci-fi or whatever, through the eyes of just schlubs. 
whatever yeah. schlubs might mean in yep. the context of that world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always compelling. I, I don't know why. I, maybe it's just like it makes it feel less constructed when the writers or the creators acknowledge up front, like, oh, no, there's just regular dudes or, you know, there's just people who are trying to live their lives removed from any sort of like greater machinations that happen in this world. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. That's so interesting. So, and it's interesting because you brought up Abbott and Costello and, (laughs) and I do want to say, I think we should specifically say that there's a difference between two co-stars and, and, and when I say co-stars, I mean the two, you know, protagonists or, or however they be yeah. and, and, uh, and an actual sidekick. I, I, just because it's mm-hmm. like, it's like, because Obi-Wan is not a sidekick for Luke. I mean, he's a mentor and there's, there's a question that like a mentor character is definitely a supporting character, mm-hmm. but there is an interesting distinction. And I guess star Wars really codifies it with, you know, the Jedi and the Padawans and, you know, there's always somebody teaching somebody below them. Yeah. But I think in the literary tradition, it's like you have the mentor who is the supporting character who provides you with knowledge, wisdom, or courage. And then you have the sidekick who's the supporting character that you provide knowledge, wisdom, or courage. It is sort of like passing that along. All right. Well, huh. then, since we're on star Wars, um, yeah. What about Chewbacca? And Han are Han and Chewbacca side characters, or is Chewbacca a sidekick to Han? Because I feel like Han and Chewbacca are both sidekicks to the main story in the first ones, <laughs> but then we get Chewbacca as a sidekick to Han, right? Dude, you know? it's so funny you keep saying kick because I'm thinking about goddamn Inception and this idea you're accepting. You know what I'm saying? All the way up through the chain of sidekicks. Like, how many kicks down is he? You know what I'm saying? How many how many kicks is Chewbacca from, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker? That's so interesting, dude. Yeah, Casey uh, Jones. Casey Jones. Is he a sidekick? I mean, I, Casey Jones is, is an, I think, just a – if you want to use the parlance – of fiction writers is a contagonist. Ooh. Okay. Um, so everybody knows what a protagonist and an antagonist is, but the contagonist, which is actually one of my favorite types of agonists, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the contagonist is defined as, you know, a character that is in opposition to the goals of the main character, but doesn't necessarily, um, rise to the level of being an antagonist like there doesn't have to be you know personal animosity a lot of times that character is redeemable a lot of times that character is almost like in a class below the protagonists um the contagonist is sort of there to provide a secondary level of not even a secondary level a totally different flavor of conflict outside of the antagonist protagonist relationship. And so I think, Mm. you know, Casey Jones sort of fits that mold. There's a lot of characters in comics that sort of fit that mold where it's like, it's challenging sort of the, uh, the moral code or like the family dynamics, 
you know, the things that really underpin the identity of the hero, the contagonist shows up to sort of poke holes in that mm. as the hero's going through their epic quest to defeat whoever the antagonist is. Okay. Mm. Oh, dude, a contagonist, uh, a contagonist slash mentor mm. stick from Daredevil. And by the way, that's that's a rich tradition too of making the the mentor also a contagonist. So that's mm-hmm. yeah, a great example. Mm-hmm. And he comes when when he very first showed up in the Daredevil books, it was like this dude that was even slick. He was old and he was fucked up and he was blind and he was slicker than Daredevil for some reason. And you're like, what is this? Mm. And he and he and he and he had power over Daredevil. He could tell Daredevil what to do and how to feel. And Daredevil would have to t- have to like consider his words. And like, who the fuck is talking to Daredevil like this? It's one of the classic comic book tricks to have some motherfucker come out of nowhere and be like, "Hey, Peter Parker." Peter's like, "Oh shit, I haven't seen you since." Shut up. We gotta go do some stuff. And it's like, "Oh, okay." He's like, "Who the fuck is bossing around?" I I got that whole feeling then to see that he was part of this ninja war, and he was like letting this guy down. This guy came from nowhere. Trained this kid up who was blind and helpless, made him into one of the fiercest fighters on the planet. And then the kid goes, I want to go to college and fuck around and have a life. And he's like, no, I helped you get good at this shit so we could participate in the Ninja Wars. And I didn't mean for you to fuck the main bad girl from the Ninja clan we're trying to defeat. Why did you do that? You're fucking my whole shit up. To see Daredevil as an insouciant kid instead of this self-assured hero doing the right thing all the time. To see him as somebody who fucks somebody else's shit up and to see him as a cog in a machine and also a dude who refused to be a cog in a machine. Mm. Oh, I love all that shit. That's one of the great values of supporting characters is that they allow you to change the context in which your hero exists. And I think what you just described is a perfect example. Yeah, and so I think a contagonist counts as a supporting character for sure. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So I think we can count uh, Casey Jones in in this conversation and uh, stick in this conversation as some of the greatest too. By the way, very much so. You know, and as long as we're talking about agonists, um, there is also the deuteragonist, which is the secondary main character that can sort of vacillate between, um, you know, being helpful to the hero and sort of opposing the hero. And I think that that's probably the best definition of Han Solo, at least in the original trilogy. You know, if Luke is your protagonist, and sorry, but I think it's the reality of the story, Leia is your love interest. Um, Mm -hmm. Han fills the role of deuteragonist. Um, This all comes from Greek. So pro is like first and then deuter is do is secondary. Yeah. Do um, yeah. <laughs> but so um, Han is the deuteragonist. And then I would agree that Chewie is the sidekick to the deuteragonist, or maybe it's a dyad. It's a dyad deuteragonist. <laughs> Chewie is just an extension of Han. And now we're getting into some real deep literary theory bullshit. But like, I think that's sort of what you need to do when you're talking supporting characters is like, there are, these really rich traditions that are as old as storytelling itself, where you can fit a lot of these secondary characters in the map of your story. Well, and and just, I want to talk about some combos real quick. And I know it's so funny to get this far into it and not talk about this guy. This guy is the key sidekick of fucking all time. And I'll say all time motherfucking Watson from Sherlock Mm. Holmes. 
he's like the key and he is he is a motherfucking um some stories it seems like he's a deuteronomist or whatever but the bottom line is he's definitely a sidekick and he is there to inform you about how fresh the main character is but he is also a bard because he's telling the tale yes i i mean i'm a i am a watson stan for sure and i think that that device of him being the point of view character is so great, especially when your protagonist is, is specifically meant to be so unrelatable, Mm. you know, Sherlock Holmes from the very beginning exists on an entirely different intellectual mental plane than most people. And so it's almost a necessity that a more common man has to give you your window into the life of this guy, because you couldn't, he couldn't possibly relate to you himself and like a third person omniscient narrator almost makes him too ordinary. Like you can't trust the narrator to, to give you all the information you need. It has to be told to you through another character because Sherlock Holmes is that dope. Yep. That's interesting. Oh man. I, I honestly, you know, it's tough because <clears throat> I think comics and movies really can't do that. You know, I think in movies you can frame the story as being told by an unreliable narrator. You know, if you give it a framing device, the classic one being Rashomon, where it's like the entire story technically takes place um, in the interrogation room. And everything that you're seeing is like the various descriptions of events as given by those people. But I also think that's a little bit tiresome if you're structuring your entire movie that way. Um, It becomes this weird game that you're playing with your audience where they're so aware of the unreliability of the narrator that like, I don't know, you can't really get lost in the story. It's and, and again, comics as well, being something that's so visual, you know, there's an inherent sense of third person omniscient, even if, you know, everything is being told with a with first person captions there is something about like the, the prose format that allows you to have a Watson style, you know, deuteragonist or point of view character that most other media doesn't allow. And I, I just think that's really interesting because, you know, as much as I love like uh, Martin Freeman's Watson in the BBC Sherlock show, it doesn't quite have the same effect as the way it's written in the novels where it's like you're literally getting the story from the point of view of Watson. Hmm. Well, it's, it's you get the interesting thing about Watson is he's one of the only dudes smart enough around to be impressed properly by Sherlock. Mm. Like he can see and is informed by Sherlock as to all the dopeness that he's doing. And he can appreciate it more than the common man, which is why he's telling it to you. Mm, and which telling also, you that look at the look at that dude's face after Sherlock did this dope thing. Yeah, which is also why Sherlock Sherlock likes him in the first place. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is on top of him being the character uh, telling the story on and part of him being a supporting character that really helps the story move along. You're also granting worthiness to not only the main character, but also to that character in that situation. That's what makes Watson so really cool is you're like, this guy's like cool enough that Sherlock wants to be around him. Yeah. 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 And 
I think the other thing that you see matriculating down through various instances of sidekicks that that originates with Watson is just that idea that like the audience needs to have a surrogate on the adventure, right? That like there needs to be somebody that you feel like you can trust, you can relate to, you're on the same level with. And that sort of gives you permission to be a part of something that normally you couldn't have any part of. And I think that brings us to, you know, the ultimate sidekick in pop culture, Robin. And, you know, superheroes have this rich tradition going back to Robin of, man, these guys are either so morally upstanding or come from such a weird background or do things that are so outside the purview of what anybody in their life could experience. We need to throw somebody in there that just feels like the kids that are reading the magazines. And Mm. whether or not that was true, it certainly worked and has stuck around for a really long time. So I guess I'd be curious if you guys think that, you know, superhero sidekicks actually serve their purpose or if they're a little bit superfluous, especially getting into the modern day. Hmm. Maybe, maybe they, I mean, look, we think of them traditionally as sidekicks, but maybe they become more supporting characters during the modern day. Cause, cause at first they were more sidekicks. Like, I think we can all agree that, that Robin was brought on so that kids could relate to somebody in, in, in Batman and see themselves a little more there rather than uh, see themselves in Batman. Right. So, so he did that. And at the same time, you start seeing like, oh, this guy's like the sidekick is also being mentored by Batman. I'd love to be mentored by Batman, but he's also useful. He's mm-hmm. saved, saves Batman's life uh, multiple times. He he comes in and stops bad guys. He stops the guy from hitting, you know, Batman with a crowbar in the back of the head, even though Ed hates that because no one <laughs> should ever be able to sneak up on Batman. Um, he should see everything at all times. He's perfect and he's smelly. Um, in fact, the reason no one can sleep on, on Batman is he would smell the fresh air. And it would distract him and he would be able to turn around and punch him. But Robin also helps out in that situation too. Well, I think certainly in, in Dick Grayson's case, yeah, and maybe all of the Robins to a certain extent, he, he graduates to becoming a protagonist in his own right. And I think yeah. that's kind of interesting because I don't know if that's present anywhere else in like a literary tradition, you know, mm. going back through all of time of your supporting character, your sidekick, your deuteragonist, whatever you want to call it, eventually becoming a protagonist in their own stories. Like, you know, who was uh, Beowulf's buddy, Enkidu, Ekidu, whatever his name was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he doesn't go on to have his own adventures outside of Beowulf stories, you know what I mean? There's something kind of interesting to that idea of, like, you start as a sidekick and then you become your own protagonist. I mean, I mean eventually uh, all the Star Wars characters basically do. Um, yeah. I'm just so. saying Robin did it first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. 
Well, starting as a as a kid, you can. I think it's one of the main advantages of of his particular character is like people were able to see him like grow up before our eyes, as it were, and then start to uh, just as a natural thing of people writing him over and over again and wanting to get farther and farther away from. Holy smokes, Batman! You're so awesome. Mm. Like into the whole like we're partners. Like by the seventies, it seemed like they were partners. You know what I'm saying? By like the late seventies, I think that they were like partner partners like every time you'd see that they were they were together it wasn't so much oh chum you dumb fucker it was like it was like all right go over there and i'll go over here we'll hit them from both sides got it batman you know what i mean it was like your buddy on a football team that's not your that's not your like you know uh uh, poop butt or something that's just your buddy that you're helping do something and by that same token by the late 70s robin was also like the leader of the team titans Right. right. I mean, over the course of time, they kept putting him over more and more as his own guy. Like, I'm junior the guy, but I'm definitely the guy. You yeah. know what I mean? Which, I mean, and then now the Nightwing thing really puts that over even more. Like, when Batman gets incapacitated, it seems like the whole DC universe is like, hey, um, so what, is, what does Nightwing think? Like, don't make it all, all, all like, obvious, even though he is the greatest detective. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> fuck. You yeah. got to ask Nightwing what's up. When the, yeah. when the DC universe breaks. That's pretty interesting. Um, now, when, do we, when does Nightwing get a Robin? I mean, what mm. they've been doing lately, right, is they've essentially kind of been turning Nightwing into a two-hander with Batgirl. So it, you're getting this dual protagonist vibe going on, um, which kind of mimics what Ed was talking about when Robin graduated to, like, Batman's partner as opposed to his sidekick. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's, it's great to have a junior Catwoman Batman book, right? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Batgirl and Nightwing, it makes sense, and even aesthetically, it makes sense. It just it it just, it just makes a lot of fucking sense sales wise. It brings up an interesting question for me though, which is: Is there even a place for sidekicks in the modern conception of superheroes? Mm, you know well, what I mean? Who would who would qualify nowadays? I think that's what we should search for because I mean, Rick back Jones. in the days, it was Jubilee. Rick, jo- Rick is Rick Jones really in comics now? No, you know what no, I'm saying? Not. Well, that's that's sort of my point, right? Is I think there was a time when almost everybody had sidekicks. Even to your point, Wolverine, you know, had Kitty Pride, then had Jubilee. But as comics have continued to quote unquote mature, it just seems like everybody needs to be a hero to somebody else. And so you can't just relegate somebody to being the sidekick. It's almost like people don't want that. Um, Yeah. Supporting characters are more the flavor of the day. For some reason, my mind is getting stuck on this greatest supporting character. Maybe the greatest contagonist of all fucking time. Mm. And the great, one of the greatest supporting characters of all time. Uh, Quint and Mr. Hooper in Jaws. <laughs> oh, oh, dude. Quint is amazing. By the way, that archetype, the Quint archetype, is the contagonist. Mm-hmm. And that dude fucking rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Mr. Hooper, Mr. Hooper is like the guy, like the, if you go on by uh, 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 Blake Schneider's uh, little dictates, it's like the half man is the dude who has seen the monster and survived it. And it's come back scarred to tell you, hey, man, don't go fuck with that monster. But if you do go fuck with the monster, bring me along because I'm dope. 
Hooper is like, I don't even know what he would be in that mythological hero with a billion faces bullshit. But Hooper is the guy with the expertise, but not the field knowledge. He's the guy who's like, fuck, man, I'm going to bring this poison. I'm going to bring this shark cage. I'm going to bring this key shit to fuck the shark up. But it ain't going to work exactly right because the hero has to solve it afterwards. But he uses something that the contagonist with the barrels and this, I don't know what the fuck you'd call it, sidekick and Hooper brought. Chief Brody uses a combination of the things that they brought to the party to defeat the shark in the end. But he has to be the one to do it because he's the protagonist. I would say, at least in the context of the movie, I haven't read the novel, but in the movie Jaws, Hooper almost fits the bill of a sidekick. Yeah. You know, he's he's less capable. He's got that kind of spunky energy. He's in over his head. He, like, he doesn't understand the gravity or the danger of the situation. He's really just there to assist the protagonist. Like, and aside from the, the fact that he's a look gr- cool. Well, Sorry. right. I mean, aside from the fact that he's a grown-ass man, he might as well be Robin. You know, yeah. it's like, that's really his role. Yeah, but you know what? I also think, though, what's great about that character and a lot of the characters in Jaws, from my personal point of view, um, he's a real guy with his real own shit going on. He's rich, and the reason why he cares about this shit is that, like, this is a big squalus for this area, and you guys think you caught it, but you didn't. And if I, he's got a Peter Parker thing going, he's got his own, he doesn't just stay because he's like, oh, Chief Brody's dope. Hey, Chief Brody, can I stick around and blow you and walk around this dumb town with kids are karate chopping, uh, picket fences? Let me just be hanging out with you. No, 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 no. Hooper's like, let me do the autopsy. Oh, shit. Okay. This is the bite radius. Let me go measure it up with this tiger shark. Hey, I'm a fucking still got a shark problem. I have to get in my boat, go out here to where this thing is pinging and get the, I need to do this. And Chief Brody for a while is along his ride. So he fits that bill we were talking about earlier of those characters that like they got their own life and yeah. it intersects with our hero's life. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes him like a really great supported character to me. I think those three guys also sort of fit the Kirk, Spock, McCoy triad, which the way I the way that always made the most sense to me in terms of like how to define that is um, in Freudian terms. You have a you have a trinity of characters that represent the id, the ego, and the superego. One of the characters is just driven by gut instinct, is more of a base character, is more you know, just a a, a ball of emotion, right? And that would be uh, McCoy. Oh. it would be it would be McCoy, and uh, you'll you'll see why, right? Okay. McCoy is everything's everything's by his gut. He's super cautious. It's like, no, this is going to go wrong. This is, you know, you can't do it this way. You gotta, you gotta pay more, you know, he's the one who's trying to pull them in the direction of feeling. Then you have the character who's the super ego, who is 100% rational, which is obviously Spock, who's trying to pull them in the direction of logic. And then you have the ego in the middle, which has to reconcile the two pushes and pulls and find the third way solution, which would be Kirk. And I think that, you know, Brody, Quint and Hooper very much fit that. And I think, you you know, you find that recurring more in the modern era, because I don't think it was until Freud sort of laid out id, ego and superego that fiction writers really took that to heart to be like, oh man, that's a great way to define the relationship between three characters 
who need to go on a journey together, who need to have a certain amount of conflict between them that they need to reconcile in order to achieve the greater objective. And to a certain extent, I mean, you even see it like in the way that Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman are portrayed together. You know, and I think the roles will sometimes rotate between those three. Um, but same thing with like Captain America, Thor and Iron Man, maybe more in the movies than in comic books. You know, it's just a really great way to define a three-way protagonist when you need to do that. Um, you make one the gut instinct, you know, feeling guy, one the ultra-rational uptight guy, and one the guy who can, you know, find the middle way between them. It's mm. classic stuff. I'm just, it's uh, something occurred to me. When... I, have you seen when supporting characters become more important than the main character? Um, the reason I'm mentioning this is uh, I think in Harry Potter that happens. Mm. Um, Hermione is way more interesting than Harry Potter. Ron Weasley, way more interesting than Harry Potter. Even Neville Longbottom is more interesting, I, I would argue. And Dumbledore. I want to know more about Dumbledore than I want to know about Harry Potter. So, oh, while you're bullshitting, everybody's more interesting than Luke Skywalker. And I understand that so many people have like intellectualized that and made up all these different reasons why he's interesting. But everybody's more interesting than fucking Luke Skywalker, especially the first movie. I want to, I would want to know more about Leia. Where's what is her adventure coming from? Like, I, I, all of these Ben Kenobi, are you kidding me? What, what, what has Ben Kenobi been through? We, we see where he is, you know, like all that stuff is. I just think that's interesting how important supporting characters can be when they're done right. I honestly think that's an inherent drawback of the hero's journey formula is that anytime you have a chosen one type hero, right? Even if it's, even if they're not a chosen one, according to a mythology in the world of the story, but if you, if you set yourself up with a mythological style hero, number one, They have to be somewhat reluctant. Number two, they have to ultimately be acting for the greater good and to bring, you know, prosperity to their home. So like within those two things, you get kind of a narrowly defined character. Like I have to Mm -hmm. overcome some cowardice and then I need to work for everybody else's benefit. And it's like, okay, that's the character. And you can make 31 flavors of that, but eventually you just kind of see through it. And the interesting thing is all the other archetypes that surround the hero have way more leeway to be more interesting, to Mm -hmm. want different things, to have, you know, much more conflict in their own personalities to come from crazy backgrounds. You know, that I I think that's why it's imperative to kind of get away from the hero's journey. Yeah, well, I mean, and I, I'd say that's one of the things, what you just said, what you just said so beautifully stated is why I think there's starting to be a lot of diversity in casting and all types of shit. I think as much as it is market share and kowtowing to these, what, 11, 12% of the population and some girls, just throw some makeup at them. We don't have to give them all, give them a bunch of heroes to worship. That's what they've been saying for 70, 80 years. It's been working just fucking fine. So I think in these rooms, these new creators are being like, can I please have Hermione be the main fucking character? And can she please be dark skin like I envisioned her when I was 12 at fucking book camp or whatever? And can we please get some of these people who are like, 
interesting and have interesting shit they have to yeah like you said interesting decisions these type of people have to make because of their particular social strata and everything it's it's so different than this sort of um gary stew that we've been given for years and years that you can just imprint on which is what harry potter totally is He's like Gary Stu to the fucking hilt to the point where it's like Superman has so much more gravitas than Harry fucking Potter. Oh, it's you brought insane. up Superman. Mm. Olsen. Oh, listen, I, I've got some I got some thoughts on Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I did want to say though, like to that point that you were just talking about, Ed, you look at something like Black Panther, even that first Black Panther movie, T'Challa is the least interesting character in that movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I don't want to say that he gets a pass as if, you know, we're handing out passes, but it's like he becomes inherently more interesting because he comes from a place and is a type of person that you haven't seen portrayed on screen before. So the texture of it is way more engaging than any number mm-hmm. of other heroes journey stories. But within that world, he is still a textbook hero of a thousand faces. And that mm-hmm. inherently makes him the least interesting character in his world. Yeah. I mean, cause they, cause they've rendered the world. So, so interestingly that it was like a real place and he was just like, Hey, so I'm the king of in stuff. Well, what do you do? Well, mostly I just sort of sit down and then, and then sometimes I'll fight a dude by a waterfall, but I'm kind of, I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to give people technology and stuff, but you know, Right. It's, it's like, and every, everybody else is like, I must fight for the kingdom. I must steal the vibranium. I must get my birthright. And he's like, yeah, well, I think um, I'm just over yeah. here sitting on a fence, <laughs> you know, trying to trying to make everybody like me. Yeah. And, and and then and just just see our episodes about the greatest comic book movies by decade. I I'm not trying to reduce him. But yep. in fucking Civil War, his single-mindedness and his revenge plot and the way he articulated his particular revenge plot was so sick. As warrior and king, how long do you think you can uh, you can hide your friend from me or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. how, how long then, do you think you can stop me from fucking your whole shit up, bro? And like, then, co- that's ill. That's my guy. But, that's, but then what? also, sorry, also at the end when he decides not to kill him. And- I mean, I'm less interested in that part, honestly, because I think that's just plot mechanics, honestly. And they made it have a good emotional heft. But I, I do agree with that. I think it has a good arc, because instead of being, like, revenge-driven, he goes, no, nope, yeah. the truth has to come out about this situation. We have exactly. to show... Th- and mm-hmm. that's an important part of that character. And I, I agree. I, I yeah, mean, they structured it. To, they structured it to, to make him be a very uh, uh, noble savage. But mm, the, Look, there are a whole bunch of people fair, in the comic book community that wanted to see him fuck homeboy the fuck up. You know what I mean? So I get what you're saying, though. I really yeah. do. But I think two two takeaways from that. Number one, that is T'Challa as antagonist in that movie. Yes, and he's so fucking interesting. And number two, what makes him great is like. He is the hero of his own fucking movie that's taken place that you're not really watching. You know what I mean? Like he is the hero of his own story and it just happens to intersect with what's going on over here. He just happens to get involved. Like he shows up on the scene and he's so fucking dope. The power, the superpowers that be go, you got to pick which side you're going to be on or whatever of, of our super conflict. Cause you're so dope. You're a big player in the scene. 
you had to decide. He's like, okay, I will be team not that fucking guy who blew up my dad. Mm-hmm. And then and then he's standing toe-to-toe with all the other heroes, and nobody's batting a fucking eye, and he's introducing himself by kicking everybody's ass, but not in a Gary Stu way, I gotta say. He he had certain limitations. He's had different weird fighting styles and shit. He was he but he was strong enough to fuck with Bucky's arm, but he wasn't fucking with it like Spider-Man was. They just put him over so perfectly in that movie. God damn it. I love Civil War. Sorry. It's no, just 100%. amazing. No, I mean, even that moment, which I think has been uh, kind of parodied to death at this point, but the whole, hey, I'm Clint. I don't care. Like, you know, <laughs> like he just he's in his own story. And I think right. that, that is such an instructive example of like how to do a supporting character, whether mm-hmm. he's going to be a contagonist in your movie or not. Like he doesn't realize that he's a supporting character in Steve Rogers movie. He's in his own fucking movie that just happens to intersect. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is great. And that, that actually is a nice segue to Jimmy Olsen because I think for me, the best versions of Jimmy Olsen is that, and not, he's not a contagonist, but Jimmy Olsen, whether through luck or by personality just happens to be, either the most unlucky and accident prone or the most interesting person in Metropolis. And like, he just gets into so much shit that he can't help but cross paths with Superman. And I think that that starts in the silver age with the whole Jimmy Olsen turned into a giant, a giant turtle. Jimmy Olsen turns into an orangutan. Jimmy, you know, Jimmy Olsen just constantly (laughs) getting himself into some shit. And I think that graduates into things like the Jimmy Olsen from All-Star Superman, where it's just like, of course Superman's going to cross paths with Jimmy Olsen because Jimmy Olsen's doing the craziest fucking shit imaginable. And like, I'm less interested in the Superman, the animated series, Jimmy Olsen, where it's just like, I'm just constantly running around trying to take pictures of Superman. That's a part of his character, but that's not his character. Yeah. He Jimmy Olsen needs to be the star of his own story that you never see the full picture of because it just happens to constantly be taking place in the the, the background or parallel to whatever's happening with Superman. And that's not something you've ever seen, I, I don't think, anywhere other than on the comics page. But I think it would be an interesting approach to the character. Well, um, didn't he like get shot in the Snyderverse? <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's true. He was working for the CIA and going undercover. So, I mean, I guess that counts. Yeah. Jimmy Olsen on the case. Uh, wh- what's that? A bullet in my eye before I even get to meet Superman. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> How dour, right? You got to kill him off screen, uncredited before he even gets to meet his boy. That's fucked up. But anyway. I think what you're saying about how rare that is, is kind of instructive, especially in regards to movies and stuff, because I think you're right. Like, I'm going to be very sacrilegious right here, and I think it's part of what I do. Lois Lane is a motherfucking sidekick, not a supporting character. Fair. I'm sorry, but that's what it is. Like, when you have a world where Lois Lane is going out and hiding in terrorist bunkers trying to take pictures of them when she knows goddamn well that her fucking boyfriend could come waltzing in here at any time and save her from this bullshit. It takes the, it takes the reality out of it. Now I do love if she's involved in the story, like Superman does some shit 
And then in an effort to help Superman, she uses some skills that she got by going undercover with the guys in Laos five years ago or whatever. You know what I'm saying? That's fair game. She knows how to pick a lock. Fine. Knows how to hotwire a car and slam it into Lex Luthor's fucking exosuit, giving Superman the 0.5 seconds he needs to throw the yellow kryptonite into the blah, blah, blah. Fine. But this concept that this bitch is just out here hanging off of buildings all the time and doing all this shit, it's just fucking insane. And it's really disrespectful. I'm sorry, dude. As yeah. a dude who has been in a position to to support somebody and be supported, I just didn't – I don't get it. You know what I'm saying? She's constantly putting this motherfucker in this position where, oh, oh, I could go stop the Regilians from destroying the universe or save you for the umpteenth time for fucking with this terrorist cell. Bitch, take the pictures from across the street. You know what I mean? Like, how many yeah. times can you get kidnapped? You and Robin, the most kidnapped motherfuckers of all time. It just doesn't make any sense to me anymore. I think her as a nice sidekick that has certain responsibilities, like I just said, makes a lot of sense. I think even Jimmy Olsen kind of used that way pretty much. Makes a lot of sense. But them having all this stuff to do, just I, it's putting a big tax on soups, man. It it opens up a bigger conversation too about the damsel in distress trope, where as mm-hmm. if we're talking supporting characters, so often the female love interest is just used to create convenient conflict to put the hero over, and I feel like we're past that. You know, okay. I, I don't know what else to say. Fair, definitely. Definitely. So again, like a true sidekick, give her some responsibilities. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know. No, and I, I mean, I think that was one of the big sins of Man of Steel was like they tried to portray her that way, but the only real motivation she had in that movie was she wanted to find out who Superman was. And then once she did, they just kept having to shoehorn her into the rest of the movie when it would have been. Way mm-hmm. easier, right? If like she was trying to figure out something, I, and again, they would have had to rewrite the movie. But it's like if she was on the trail of putting together something about you know alien technology or whatever that made her somewhat instrumental to Superman being able to defeat Zod or figure out what the Kryptonians were doing. I don't know, but like they essentially went from in the first act making her kind of a a sidekick supporting character, someone who's on her own quest that just happens to intersect with the hero. And then they just full on turned her into a damsel in distress who just also happens to show up everywhere at the most convenient times just Mm -hmm. because she has to be in the story. You know why? That's because they made her the bard. They in oh. that conception, they threw some bard juice on her. She yeah, has to be wrong. there to sing a song for the Witcher, even if it doesn't make no kind of sense. Because there were several times I made it still and, and other movies, even where they're just like, Yeah, grab the girl. What the fuck for? You need 145 pounds of fucking redhead for what? <laughs> what do you need? What do you need it for? At this Ross point in the story, what do you need it for? To your Superman, <laughs> even though he doesn't eat. Even though he doesn't eat. Okay. I mean, they, they really literalized it, though, because they straight up had her, like, reciting voiceover about the character in that Man of Steel movie. So that's a great call, Ed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it does it, – it's it's not insane. She is a journalist. That's another thing. Like, and it, her trying to search for stories and find out facts 
that help Superman to solve shit is dope and could really Watson her up in a way that is fresh. And I know that the best Superman stories that you guys are screaming at your podcast device do that. But very often I just see her in adventures where there is no sense of danger to the shit. Cause I know the homeboy could bust through at any time. And if he doesn't, then he's being shitty. Like what the fuck? And, and why would she even do that? Why if, if Superman is out of space for three months, mm. why would you go underground in a terrorist cell at that point? To get right. killed so when he comes back with a with a beard from Dimension X and, and he sees your fucked up dead body. You know what I'm saying? Like, why would you do that? But I don't think also, she would do that. Right. I mean, that's the thing, too, is like you're doing a disservice to that character by just forcing her to do things that make her a supporting character to your main character. Whereas, like, look, we live in a world where female journalists go out and get really tough stories from really fucked up places and almost always are able to do it without being held hostage by the subject of their story. You know what I mean? So it's like when you make the character constantly being held at gunpoint and being dangled off roofs and whatever else, she just kind of looks like she's shitty at her job. Yes. 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 I, exactly. I'm so glad you brought it around to a feminist point because I was I was sounding like, oh yeah, I hate girls and stories. Get these goyles out my stories. No, just find something more interesting for him to do than that bullshit because it's demeaning. Well, and let's I talk think- about how Leia is one of the best female, um, and 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 uh, uh, uh supporting characters though. Mm. Because if you think about it, what is the like? Sure, she's stuck in the cell, but once she gets out of the cell, she's like, I'm making my own way. Because my goal is to get back to the rebellion, get these plans uh, to the people in charge, and and stop, you know, the the empire. She's got her own story, and I think that that makes her way more interesting. I think to be a a little objective, that original movie doesn't quite give us that, but it's easy to read that into the movie. I oh, think it was. I think it was revolutionary at the time, just the fact that she was very independent and kick-ass and she wasn't going to be a damsel in distress, even though she kind of was, you know, they were, they a little bit had their cake and eat it too. I feel like the concept of her being, you know, so integral to the resistance or the rebellion rather um, grew over time with the movies like you see more of that in Empire and you see more of that in Return of the Jedi. And then, you know, obviously in the expanded universe and subsequent stories, like she becomes more and more integral. I think in that first movie, you know, it was a little bit vague. Like she was part of the rebellion for sure, but exactly how she was involved and why and where, you know, how that all started and where it came from was a little bit like, eh, don't worry about that. Um, yeah, well, it's it's like us trying to read the very first Robin comic book when he was like, "Hey, yeah. chum, you no, got any Zagnut bars? Oh, what? Oh, there's a secret cave. Oh shit! <laughs> you know, whatever the fuck he said in 1940. Like, obviously, it's been it's a, it's gotten a chance to through iterative art yeah. get better and better over time. Uh, yeah, okay, and yeah, especially well, with those greater universe books. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let me ask you, Ed, Conan the Barbarian. Supporting characters in Conan. Well, I'm sorry they all get fucking killed. No, um, I mean, in I mean, obviously in the movie, inside in the movie, he's got Subutai 
and he's got Valeria. And uh, Super Ty is definitely a, a sidekick. I mean, I, you just he is a yeah. sidekick. Um, and but Valeria is definitely a supporting character slash love interest. And obviously, Mako is his bard. Ma- Mako, I mean the the fucking the wizard. I fucking forgot what the wizard's name was, but yeah, the Mako's wizard. Right. The, I mean, his, that's his real name, but the fucking wizard guy. Like, is it just called the wizard? Anyway, that wizard, he oh. is the bard. He tells the story of Conan in the beginning, uh, uh, and he breaks down, you know, that Conan had a lot of adventures before he became king, and this is, let me regale you with tales of high adventure, you know? Yeah, Akira. But he doesn't, he doesn't have, what's his name? Akira. And the, okay. Uh, he just doesn't have, um, in in the comics, he has Belit. And he has uh, Red Sonia, and Red Sonia is definitely the the fucking definition of a person who does not believe she's a supporting character in anybody's story. Mm-hmm. She's doing her own fucking thing, and she just happened to run into this stupid lunkhead while they were both trying to steal some shit. They kind of stole um, some key Red Sonia um, Conan stories and put them with Valeria, like Valeria running into Subotai and Conan, and they're all after the same jewels. That's like an interesting way to portray like these are all thieves cross crisscrossing through each other's lives. But what they don't know is they're crisscrossing with the life of maybe the the greatest king of Aquilonia when he was a young man stealing shit and trying to hunt down a, a, a fucking evil snake cult. You know what I mean? Like, I love shit like that. Like at this point in time, you're talking to a bastard and a thief and a reaver, but he's going to become this greater thing later. Sign me up for that shit all day, and that's why I know Star Wars gets in everybody's veins, but this Hyboria shit got in my veins the way that Star Wars got in the rest of y'all's veins. Because I love that shit. Like, I'm eventually going to be the king, but I got to be like a pirate. A fucking... Like, this motherfucker Conan is is getting XP all across the map. You know what I'm saying? He's getting experience points and everything. Charisma. Fucking, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's doing all the D&D shit. Multi-classic. But so... So much cooler though. No, I'm just joking. But uh, but yes, and, and they did have a D and D module, a low magic D and D module based upon Conan. Until you know the Howard Estate shut that bullshit down. <laughs> but but I would have loved to play that a low magic sword and sorcery, sword and sandal D and D mod. Sign me up for that shit. I I'd love to play that because I love that character. But yeah, those are his supporting characters. And Belit is his um famous pirate wife that dies. She's like if Lois. She's like if what if what if Superman kicked it with Lois Lane for like eight weeks, and they loved a lifetime, and then they separated, and then she came back and got fucking killed. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of what Belit is to um to home. And uh, Valeria isn't even a big thing in the comics, not really. She shows up a couple times, but like they put Valeria and Shred Sonya together for the movie. So yeah. All right. I want to tread. You just made me think of it with your description there. I want to tread into some controversial territory and let's talk about fridging for a second. Oh, well, because I, I, I will choose my words a little bit carefully. Sure. I think that fridging has sort of become akin to Mary Sue and that the people, people tend to throw the term around now outside of the scope that it was originally defined as I for one don't mind characters getting killed to motivate other characters. 
And I feel like there's sort of this cultural conversation that that as a thing just shouldn't exist. And I don't know as a storyteller if I'm comfortable with that. And I think that this is important to discussing supporting characters. Let me tell you, when reading novels, uh, as a, a fantasy reader and a, a novel reader in general, um, characters dying uh, are, is super fucking important. Yeah, uh, it, it's 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 super important to to show the risk that the main character is taking. Even if they're super tough, they can still die at any moment if they're their love interest who is as just as tough as them dies or their uh, best friend who's just as tough as them dies. Like it, it's a big deal to have that. And on top of that, it adds emotional, like, like uh, uh, gravitas to whatever actions they take to remedy that situation, whether it be to grow as a person and accept their death and bring to justice, the person through some kind of like, legal justice or whatever or is it killing them is that the justice they need do they find that killing them isn't the justice they need like there's so many cool stories to all of that that i have to agree like sometimes it's great to kill a character now i will say this if you just have a character to exist in order to kill them mm -hmm. so that their circumstances that's terrible but if you have a great character who's awesome and then that character dies and it motivates your main character i don't think that's a problem well i think what you're what you're hinting at is like i think what people i think the people who are mad at fridging i think fridging is just you have this milquetoast not even character for a while to just have the main character say lines to and then yep. you kill them like oh look what i did and it's like no you just took out the female character in the book and she sucked anyway, and mm. now you're trying to expect all this gravitas out of it, and you kind of just made her up to die because the whole time she didn't state that she would. It isn't even like those old movies, right, where the motherfucker would be like, the person that's about to die is always talking about, man, after this, after this last week on the job, I'm going to go up to Muskogee, and I'm going to do some noodling. <laughs> that's when you get in the water and you grab the catfish out of the silt, and you hold it in your fucking hands, and you feel like a man. I'm going to do that shit. Oh, what? Some gunfire? Oh, I'm fucking dead. And the hero is motivated for the next 45 minutes. Even that is better than what they did to certain chicks who are just like there to get fucked and yeah. just lay around and then get killed. And what they're at, I think what people are asking for and what the good stories do is like, yeah, she fucked them. Then she saved them. Then she helped him with this thing. Then she opposed him on this case and almost got him fucked up because her sense of morals were strong, blah, blah. Then she came around then right as they're about to be on the same team and be in love and go after the bad guy, she gets fucking killed. And that halves our hero's resources for going after the bad guy and fucks him up mentally. That's a story. And people, mm -hmm. people ask, you know, people are just asking for that. And I think, I think people are willing to oblige. I think the screenwriters of the now are more and more willing to oblige. But I think it goes back to that diversity shit, though, man. Some dudes need to start getting fridged. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, well, you know. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, uh, like, without giving spoilers, we just recently talked on a Patreon episode um, about some of our latest, greatest, some of the things that we're into lately. And in the movie Barbarian, there's a great moment like that. Mm -hmm. which I, I won't spoil it further. But I mean, I think I thought that was a great example of like, clearly the character who dies 
was only there to complicate and motivate the another character's story, but also it works really well. And maybe the fact that, you know, it's not a woman um, is points in its favor. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I, I would also say that I think a lot of the conversation about fridging also hinges on like the exploitiveness of how somebody gets killed. Yeah. You know, there, there's the Frank Miller thing where like women are always getting raped so that main characters can uh, go and take revenge, which just plays into all kinds of horrible, like toxic masculine uh, stereotypes. And then also even in the original example of fridging where Kyle Rayner's girlfriend gets killed and you know, that ups the stakes of his feud against major force that maybe wouldn't have been so egregious if they didn't kill her in such a horror movie way where it's like she literally got folded in half and shoved in his fridge. And it's like, did we really need to do that? You know, I don't know. There's some, there's some gray area here to like, when does a character death go too far or, you know, when is it an easier, cheap way out? I don't know. I think it's an interesting conversation anyway. Yeah. Let me say this. Um, you ever been like, you ever get home from like a hard workout or, or just a hard day and man, you're so tired. You're just so tired, but you're also like really thirsty. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there is a cherry Coke or whatever your beverage of choices in your refrigerator. And you're just so excited to get to that refrigerator. And then you open the refrigerator and there's your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and you realize the bad guy took your fucking cherry coke out. <laughs> I just had to. I had to make a joke out of that. I had to fucking do it, and I apologize. I apologize. Uh, right now. Not only is my wife dead, my fucking cherry <laughs> coke is gone. gone. You're just looking at a folded up person. Where's my fucking cherry coke? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thirsty. Oh, She's dead. Oh ah. my god! Oh, the people okay. who really hate fridging are gonna have fun with that soundbite. These guys claim to get it, and they just don't get it. <laughs> but uh, uh, but it, it's just it's it is really. Uh, but I want to I want to as we round out here, I would love for us to explore some of the people that we think should get the um, Dick Grayson Nightwing. Like the people mm. who should be able to trend, transcend because the later adventures of Watson would be fucking amazing to me. Yep. And I don't, yeah. I know people have probably pitched it before, or whatever. I'm not saying it's a novel thing, but I haven't seen it on a big level. I would love to see that in the same. And then, and then it's weird. Like I, we went this whole time without talking about this, but I got to put my foot down. This fucking Pennyworth shit. Oh boy. Yeah. Just. The the adventures of Batman's butler before he's even Batman's butler. These formative stand by me in Britain and in, in the sixties or whatever, or like you know the Avengers or whatever you want to call it. The Avengers, meaning that UK show, um, with the lady in the cat suit and the guy with the bowler hat. Yep. That type of like old school UK super spy shit. What the fuck, man? What what the fuck? What the fuck? 
What the fuck? I can't get a short round series where he goes around taking. Remember that tweet? There was a really viral tweet that said, uh, the natural extension of Indiana Jones and an Indiana Jones reboot is to get um, get short round as a grown man. And he's putting antiquities back where they were stolen from. Because ironically enough, they don't belong in a museum. They no. belong with the cultural peoples they were jacked from and not to be ogled by a bunch of pale cocksuckers. So it's like, why don't you just put it all back? That would I be awesome. I want to see that. And we that would be so got, awesome. After we got everything everywhere all at once. He's back, baby. He's, he's back, back, baby. And he's 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 really ready. So yeah, something like like who deserves that type of treatment? In fiction, besides, like I said, I threw mine out. Fuck it, Watson. The later adventures of Watson are so much more interesting to me than the pre-adventures of fucking of of Alfred. Because in the end, you know Alfred's going to make it. In these stories, one of these fucking one of these, he should die. The mm-hmm. last of these stories, Watson should die, getting in over his head and dying to solve the case, and maybe even solving the case posthumously, and being able to break down Sherlock Holmes style how he did it. And he wins in the end or something. You know what I mean? So something ill that shows that he learned lessons from studying at the knee of this ill dude for this whole time. And these adventures are extra rough because he's not quite as good at Kung Fu as homeboy. And he isn't quite as good at like, sometimes he'll fall for a red herring and get knocked in the back of the head and trapped. And he has to break out of it. You know what I'm saying? Like he has his own adventures. Yeah. These, You know, I would fucking love that. I, I don't know why my mind immediately goes to um, some of the old, like horror movie sidekicks, so like Renfield or Igor, you know what I mean? Like ha. either Dracula's familiar or Doctor Frankenstein's hunchbacked assistant. Like that's crazy. Yeah, the further adventures of Igor. <laughs> yeah, maybe they team up. Renfield and Igor get together and like go on to conquer a country or something. You know what I mean? Oh, like, dude, with their with their expertise, because like Renfield's like almost a vampire and fucking right. and Igor is like a misshapen monster, but he's more of a lab assistant than a real beefcake like Frankenstein was. So he's going to have to work it out. Oh, that's fucking interesting. And their body shapes are kind of interesting together, like the Abbott and Costello. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. That'd be fun. You guys are going to hate mine. What? Well, the supernatural is, is Jody Mills. I fucking knew it was supernatural. <laughs> of course it is. But I got it's actually good. No, I, I mean, I, I want you to say what you're going to say about supernatural, but I got another one for you, Ron. Okay, cool. Um, Kato. So jo- oh, oh, hell yes. Hell yes, Kato. Yes. Hell yes. Kato shouldn't fucking Green Hornet should retire and just let Kato do his fucking job. <laughs> give him the green hornet mask or something i don't know no just let him be kato fuck yeah i mean but you know what bro I, and i know that they must have done this over the course of time but maybe they did it and if they did it they're missing it the green hornet and it's kato and he yep. and he fucking kicks everybody's goddamn ass he's assumed the fucking mantle and he's like if the green hornet actually was hard and he's got all these dope ass weapons so he's like he could like be fucking dudes up and then whip out some dope ass weapons and then fuck them up and then you have a super dope car and he can have his own fucking Kato. That's like, I, I know they have, they've had a Kato that's a girl, mm. but I would have him have a girl Kato. That's either his daughter or his long lost sister or somebody he can't quite control. So we can get some of that Damian Wayne going. Yeah. So like Kato as this guy who's now in charge, now he sees maybe that's part of what I'm not trying to say that the white dude had a real good, 
role in the thing and that he was important because he sucked and he wasn't. But he did handle certain things that Cato didn't have to handle. Cato wasn't just one man operation doing this shit and this white guy was taking credit for it. The white guy was handling some of the shit he didn't want to do. Like back when Bill used to edit the podcast for us. It's like, hey, man, just do that thing, man. Do, do that thing. And now, you, and then when you take over, you realize how much that person did for you. You realize how much that being part of their team in that respect helped you. And so he, now that he's Green Hornet, he has to keep up the fucking secret identity way more and do this shit, that, and the other. Then he's got this sister or this daughter or whatever who he can't control who's, like, kicking people's heads off at night. And he's like, bitch, you could be my Kato. Just stop kicking people's heads off, you know? It would, <laughs> actually, it would actually be a really cool story, like, if Britt Reed died in the course of being the Green Hornet. So then Kato has to, like cover up the fact that he was the green hornet has to navigate like where is his inheritance going because that's the money that's like funding their whole operation mm -hmm. while continuing to be the green hornet while mm -hmm. recruiting a new kato like that'd be a pretty dope little story yeah man tell yeah. you man it should pay us the medium bucks <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll take the medium bucks please uh, but, dude, I'm telling you, see, so shit like that. I mean, I, I love for characters. What's the most absurd one you could think of? Like, maybe one of the other guys in Armageddon getting in another adventure? <laughs> Steve Buscemi's character survives Armageddon and then has to save the world again. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, that'd be oh, amazing. <laughs> he's, he says he get his team together. <laughs> Oh, and everybody that's alive is like, I'm not going back into space anymore. I'm trying to see. Okay. <laughs> this is, stay with me on this one because I'm thinking comics and I'm trying to think like supporting characters in comics you could graduate. What if Skeets, Booster Gold's little robot sidekick, <laughs> became the star of his own book and Booster Gold is either dead or they're separated or whatever? I feel like you might be able to do something interesting there. Wow! So that he doesn't got to recruit another booster gold. Maybe he's doing tryouts. I don't know. I mean, he I realizes think he, he can do a better job. He could, yeah, like just that little flying robot. It could be like a real Wall-E situation. Like that little flying robot is either lost in time or lost in space or whatever, and you're just you're just following him around on some adventures. No booster gold. Even it's not even about booster gold. You know, I like, dude. It. I, I'll say I I love that. And but you know what it made me think of the fucking triad we were talking about earlier of Spock and McCoy and Kirk. Mm. I need an Earth sixty seven where Kirk fucking dies. That goddamn uh, that that weird reptile dude that he was fighting lamely on that planet at that time. The Gorn, the Gorn gets a man, rips him apart, eats his entrails, and fucking Spock is pressed to be the captain and we get a whole set of adventures that way because like god damn it this motherfucker was standing next to a dude who was like low-key inferior to him on a lot of levels for 70 years just <laughs> yeah. following him around it's like it's like what what if Sherlock Holmes followed Watson around for 70 fucking years it incenses me, dude, that there's no world where Spock got to just be the captain of his own shit. And I understand in the in, the giant diaspora of Star Trek media and and plays and spec scripts and shit. I'm sure he was a captain of his own ship. I'm sure he had a lot of adventures. I'll talk about in the main canon that people know about. He was basically like, it's my beef with fucking Anakin all over again. How are you going to be the man next to the man your whole fucking life? Yeah. What the fuck is going on with that shit? 
You know what I'm saying? So maybe that's why I want to, we wanted to talk about this okay. supporting characters shit. It's like some characters stay supporting characters for so long. It's like, why can't we graduate them? You know, even even Riker gets to be a captain later. That I, that yeah, that he does. makes that's true. Yeah, Did that's what I'm ever saying. Captain uh, McCoy didn't want to be a captain. He wanted to just fucking do his medical base shit. You yeah, know what Ron, I mean? He's a doctor, not this? a captain. Well, <laughs> what about a story where all of those, all the characters who normally would do the stepping up, are out of put out of order, and McCoy has to take the helm, and then it turns out. He's amazing at it. He doesn't want to do it. So the story is, how do you become something you don't want to do if it saves people's lives? And he knows he could save people's lives and save pe- save save situations because now he knows he's great at this. He's just he's just stepped in and was like, okay, do this, do this. Oh, do that, do that. And it all works. Well, dude, McCoy, great. I mean, honestly, bro, at first when you're a I'm like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. But I do like the fact that the person that was told that they were too emotional that they like i can actually do it because they find a way to like focus that the fact that they do care and the fact that they're looking at all these star trek situations as a physician would you know so maybe he's coming up maybe him being able to be on the bridge he would come up with a doper diagnosis as to why the space whale is fucking their ship in the ass like oh it's obviously trying to mate with us it's not a it's not a a, it's not a mean alien it's trying to do this so just shoot some neutrinos and it'll jizz and get the fuck off of us you know he might know that instantly whereas spock and them are trying to go through all these codes and all this stuff porn i've ever heard <laughs> oh, there, there's been several times in Star Trek canon where animals have tried to fuck the ship. I did not make that up out of whole cloth. There's, there's been times, or have been, or have been intensely attracted to the ship. But the bottom line is, maybe a medical officer right there at the beginning of the story could see something that the naval people couldn't. You know what I mean? That could be very interesting, Ron. The doctor is in. That's the episode. <laughs> he, he, he becomes the captain, and uh, and they have done that in Voyager. The doctor. And that show became the captain because he's a hologram. So they installed in him captain subroutines, but he doesn't know how to use them all the time. And he's really, he has a lot of bravado when he's in his captain persona. So he fucks up even though he's built for it. So it's like an interesting comedic, whatever. (laughs) Fair. You do, you do really need though, to have like a serial story, a story with a lot of content to pick out those characters that quote unquote deserve to be graduated to main characters. Mm, yeah. Cause it's, it's hard in the, in the span of like one movie or one novel even to be like, you know what? That was good. But how about that supporting character? What's going on with them? It's like, you almost need to give them space to like live and breathe and become fleshed out before you really feel like, okay, I need them to headline their own thing. Yeah. Hmm. I need an Aunt May story. Dude, what if what if Paul Blart Mall Cop was actually first developed as like a Reginald Vill Johnson vehicle where the character from Die Hard had had gotten off the force and he was just taking take care of the shitty little mall and he's Dude. just doing his shitty little job and then the terrorists come and he's like fuck now it's me I'm the one that's on the inside and he's talking to Ray Liotta on the on the fucking microphone outside. Uh, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> Dude, and he just starts housing Twinkies because he's so nervous. He's like, Jesus Christ, I can't. This is awful. 
Honestly, by the way, Reginald Bell Johnson in Die Hard, one of the great supporting characters in in certainly in action movies. Oh like, yeah. Really fits in that awesome space that we were kind of talking about earlier, where he's like a little bit of the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern because he's not directly involved, but he's got a lot of commentary, but he's also kind of the sidekick because he's definitely contributing to the hero's mm-hmm. journey. Um and he's helping to put over the hero. I know sometimes I slip into wrestling jargon, but it was part of my upbringing. Like he's there to say to like uh, the the fucking that asshole. What's what the fuck was the asshole guy? The you know the guy from Breakfast Club. Yeah, fuck that guy. That guy that the the police captain that comes to fuck with him. And I was just FBI. thinking of him as Walter Peck from uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, well, I mean, no, that's the reporter guy. I'm talking about oh, like yeah. the dude, the fucking the local cop guy who's like, "Hey, man, we need to do this, that, and the other." And then like Johnson and Johnson come and supplant him for control oh. of the scene. The yeah. police captain that shows up thinking he knows everything and won't listen to Reginald Vell Johnson's character, who knows the most that anybody could know. Scenes like that are meant to tell us. Us, there is one guy out there who understands what a hero John McClane is, and he's getting shit on for half the movie. There's some some kind of rooting interest thing that starts happening for us with that extra, you know, buoyance. Well, it's he almost in that sense becomes a deuteragonist <laughs> to go back to our terms. <laughs> because well, because John McClane has, you know, it's very much him versus terrorists. But then when you extend that protagonist role out to the Reginald Bell Johnson character, it then becomes man versus the system because yes. the whole like the bureaucracy that descends on the situation almost becomes the antagonist, almost becomes like a secondary antagonist mm-hmm. in that story. And in that secondary story, Reginald Bell Johnson is the hero. And so, again, it's a little bit of that like. He's living his own story that just happens to collide with the main character's story. And again, it just gives such great texture to, to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really sick. So, uh, fuck it. All right. Theodore. Fuck Alvin and Simon. Theodore <laughs> is just doing his fucking thing. <laughs> He's chilling out. He got really fat. And, he, you know, he got about six pounds. You know, that's really fat for a chipmunk. And, and, you know. <laughs> Listen, by the way, Donatello has always needed more more of his own story in the Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. fuck yeah, man. Donat- yeah. Donatello, dude, Donatello, Donatello as the last person on Earth. How about mm. that? Like he he's responsible for leaving this Earth to go to another one. And he's a totally unique uh thing in the new world where he goes to you know what i'm saying just like so shit like that like some of those targeting back to some of the dimension hopping stories of eastman and laird of course and you know what makes you know where my mind goes when i'm thinking like 80s cartoon characters motherfucking panthro motherfucking panthro panthro needs to graduate to becoming the hero we need we need panthro headlining baby okay okay how we gonna do it though because on some real shit i think there's Obviously, there's like before he became the old man in the sea, man at arms to fucking homeboy. You could do that. But then that bumps us into Alfred territory. And again, I want to break that back. Like like uh, at the end of March for Death, Steven Seagal breaks this guy's back and throws him down a well. I want to mm-hmm. do that to the concept of the prequel hero. So maybe it's old man Panthro after the whole shithouse has come down and Lionel yes. is dead and everything. And he's the last bastion of fucking... Thundercattery? Dude, yep. uh, this is what I think. I think 
in grand King Arthurian tradition, Lino finally defeats Mumra, but in so doing has to sacrifice himself in some way. And so the Thundercats then disband because Lino's gone, the sword is broken, Mumra is gone, so their great fight is over, and Tigra, Chitara, and Panthro go their own ways. And then it's just old man Panthro wandering the universe and some shit like brings him back. Every time he tries to get out, he gets pulled back in. I'm in. Dude, I I really, I really love it because like it's it's almost like you could do something like uh He's the one who's like having like a, almost like an armor wars, like trying to track down all the old evidence of the of the Thundercats techn- technological superiority, you know, like finding Ooh. pieces of the fucking tank and different shit like that. Try to put back together the legacy of the Thundercats across there all the, the shit because they got destroyed. Like when they got to their apex and then they got something happened that destroyed the whole legacy of it. And he's just like, it's important to me that people understand what we were, what we did what we accomplished. You know what I'm saying? It's like, Oh, I'm getting fucking chills for Petro, baby. Yes. Um, great. I think that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. And, and <laughs> he's got, he's got the fixing. He's, he's great at it. I, oh, I love all of yeah. this. Yeah. That was like his bro. skill. He was always fixing shit. So he's, Oh man, this is wonderful. Cause he put, he's putting it back together. Yep. Cause that's what he was born to do. Oh my God. I'm going to shed a manly anime tear. Yeah. Oh my god, that would be so sick! Fucking Panthro, thank you, Phil. <laughs> I needed that, dude. He's never gotten his due, and just to finally see him let loose with with nunchucks that could bash through a tank and shit, you know, just yep. oh man, and finally let him be as strong as he he could be, because you yep. know, like I think Panthers age differently, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I think I think Panthro Panthro gets that old man strength. Like he just keeps getting more and more badass the older he gets dude yeah he's like dude he's like a shaolin monk dude yeah he's so because that's kind of what he was like based on when you really look at his costume he's like if a shaolin monk went to chippendales <laughs> you, course, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. oh man so yeah um i think he's, that is our the episode. roller girl of of <laughs> It's like, hey, do you take your nunchucks off? I don't take my fucking nunchucks off. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> I I, look, not to not to get too heady with this, but like, if the Thundercats have passed on into legend, and like, if Lino is Jesus, right, and he defeats the ultimate evil and ascends bodily into heaven or whatever, but like, Panthro is the one who's left, and maybe. For some reason, he even he's cursed with some some version of immortality, and so he's like cursed to wander the cosmos until the second coming of Lino, keeping the flame of the Thundercats alive. Like that's some good shit. <laughs> oh, oh, dude, yeah, and and uh, I know Ron would be like, "Hey, what if he finds out that there is no space Jesus and there's only us, and you gotta <laughs> fucking do it yourself, mm-hmm. bitch?" And mm-hmm. it'd be an interesting thing for for a monarchist. Oh, bro, Bill, see, you added beautiful layers. That's an interesting thing for a monarchist, right, to make their peace with. Like, yeah. it is not my mission to be faithful even after death, like some kind of fucking oh, that, Ronin yes. to this ideal. I, oh, You know what I mean? Panthro thinks that he failed Lino. Like, his only devotion was to the king, and now the king is gone. But he holds on to this faith 
that the king will return. There's almost a mystical quality like, and maybe he thinks if he can reunite or rebuild whatever it is he's trying to rebuild, it will herald the second coming of Lino, but he needs to make peace with the fact that that won't happen. And what is his purpose? What? Why is he here if he can't make that happen? Dude, and I think I think when in the end, oh man. So are there? If, if I don't want all the Thundercats to be dead, but they got to be definitely defeated so that if they do get their king, their king of Aquilonia back, and it's fucking Panthro, and he's got like Lionel's fucking cloth glove, and he's got a uh, uh, Tigress fucking whip, and he's and he's got a, he's got all of their mementos, kind of like how like um, I think Leonardo or Donatello survives past. I think. See either Leonardo or Raphael who survives past all Ra- the turtles. I think it's Raphael, yeah. Who, who, and he gets all of their stuff because yeah. all of their totems are tapped. And it's pieces of his brothers, and he knows how to use all of them. So he's, in essence, all the Ninja Turtles. Our boy could be, in essence, all of the fucking uh, the Thundercats. Yeah. And even to the point of putting the sword back together and finally being able to say the words himself. And maybe the last scene is that light shining across and hitting the grand batter bat you know signal array or something like he's shooting it from one planet and it hits this satellite array and shoots it to other another place and like and then maybe it says like 57 months later or something because you know light doesn't travel that fast well, but like people people see the fucking thundercat shit light up for the first time in like what 80 years or some shit like that sure and it's like the rebirth of thundera or whatever you know what i mean i'm into it and oh you, you know, God. you know, before that scene happens, he's tried it sometimes before and it never works. But like, yeah, he's, just, he's carrying that in his heart that one time he'll say, he'll say those words and the sword will glow and the, the, the omen will, will shine out. And like he had, he just has to do something that finally allows that to happen. Oh, finally. Allow- yeah. He earned, he earns it, baby. He earns it. Oh, it. Fuck. Man, dude, this, the, is, this Pan- is some hot shit. This is some Pan- hot shit. <laughs> and Panthro is, and check it out. As we round out here, what is Panthro in this? He's a sidekick and and support. Let's call him supporting character that grows into a main character, but he's also the bard of the Thundercat legacy. Yeah. So okay. he retains his supportingness even as he assumes main characterhood. That's the reason why we make these terms. That's why the reason why we fuck around with this shit. You know what I mean? That's the reason we're trying to understand these arts so that we can kind of, you know, we're we're Panthro putting the parts together. By the way, Bard to Hero is really, I mean, that's really what you were talking about with the Watson thing, even mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like Bard to Hero is an interesting, an interesting arc for uh, extending a story, especially when. Um... It, uh, the the bard also plays a important part of the hero's story. Obviously, yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, cool, dude. Uh, wait, I think we did it, guys. But obviously, there are so many other fucking sidekick adventures and mm. sidekicks that we that we ignored. We have our pop culture biases, and you have yours. Throw us a five star review. <laughs> <laughs> And you can quibble with us in there, or you can email the greatest pod at email the greatest pod at gmail.com. We've gotten a lot of really cool letters recently. Well, we got this great message from Kenda Branch. Uh, the subject line is Xena could kick Spider Man's ass. Just kidding. <laughs> or am I? Uh, <laughs> I? We should discuss it at some point. 
Uh, hi, guys. Fan of the show. Just trying to get your attention here. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for a while, while now. Was listening to the GOAT podcast before that. Thank you very much. And thanks for thanks. By the way, I want to say thank you to everybody who listened to Nerd Goat and then has come over here. We really appreciate it. Uh, and I was watching Ed on Screen Junkies before that. And while I'm not the biggest comic book nerd, because sometimes just the sheer amount of options to choose from gives me anxiety. By the way, I just want to say something on this too, Kenda. Uh, that's how I am with like One Piece and a lot of this anime where it's <laughs> yeah. like thousands and thousands of episodes. You're like, okay, well, I, I should just yeah. Um, and I do enjoy listening to y'all and Billy Business discuss all things nerdy. Uh, this episode in particular caught my ear, as does anything anytime someone mentions Xena. Xena is my goat. <laughs> I want to be her. I want to be with her, etc. Oh, and let me Both stop you us. right there. She has one of the better sidekicks in that whole genre of shit. That is true. 100%. Um, I own every single episode of Xena on VHS and DVD. Uh, own every single Xena comic. My office looks like a shrine to Xena, and I have multiple Xena tattoos just to paint a picture. We got it. We're clear. <laughs> hey, more power to you. I love it. And so I have to say that Ron really made my heart sore when he not only referenced Xena, but also said he loves the show. And it got me thinking about Xena in modern times as a low-level superhero slash vigilante. I'm sure multiple people have written the Uber fan fiction. Absolutely they have. I might have. Xena's show... <laughs> Never made it quite clear if she was a demigod or had godlike powers, except when she would temporarily gain godlike powers throughout the series. Yes. But there's plenty of episodes where you see her practicing combat techniques from former lovers. Yes, lovers. Also, <laughs> it was obvious that she could get roughed up and nearly killed in a fight by other mortals, but then she could also beat up Ares and other gods. So her power levels are definitely up for debate. Uh, that said, I think she could hang with the best of them. Spider-Man, Xena's got old-school kung fu moves, level acrobatic skills that keep him could keep him busy. Daredevil, there's an episode where Xena goes blind for a day and beats up multiple bad guys. Hawkeye, Zen, Xena's been able to cut down all kinds of arrows mid-flight with her chakram. Um, Catwoman, Xena basically was Catwoman multiple episodes anytime she had to bring into a castle to steal something. Okay, yeah. Uh, Punisher. Xena basically was the Punisher and racked up <laughs> Punisher-level body counts anytime she got so pissed off that her dark side took over. Nightwing? Oh my god. Y'all joking about Nightwing's accent had me cracking up. <laughs> now cool. I want to read that uh, in Nightwing's voice. Nightwing? Oh my god. Y'all joking about Nightwing's accent had me cracking up. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, I could go on, but I should probably get back to work. Just a few more fun facts for Ron and any other Xena fans who probably already know these things. One, Lucy Lawless was in Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie as the random punk girl who gets interviewed and asked about Spider-Man. I do remember that. Yep. Two, Bruce Campbell played a reoccurring character on Xena, and of course I remember that. And he also appeared in Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness as that street food vendor who had to slap himself. <laughs> yes. Three, one of the statues at the Illuminati headquarters in a, is a Xena statue, according to Sam Raimi. So technically, Xena is in the MCU now. Fuck yeah. Love that. Uh, and that's all I got for you now. Love the show. Thank you for the Xena shout out, Ron. And hope you all stay safe. Looking forward to the next episode. Sincerely, Kenda Branch. Oh, that is, I mean, Look, that this is, is what really we're looking sweet. for. We yeah. want you to send us letters like this. We love having these discussions, and we should definitely, at some point, uh, have a, a, a women who kick ass episode or a Xena episode. Period. So, thank you for yeah. uh, sending no. us a message, Kenda. 
I I definitely I definitely second that. And uh, it's just it's a rich world uh, of you know just the people that you don't fridge. Sometimes they have some dope ass adventures, don't they? And then, I'd love to cover those. Um, but also, uh, please do give us. Uh, I think I said it before, but I'll say it again. Give us fucking five star reviews, dude. Honestly, I, I really want us to get more findable via search. Sincerely, and uh, please do fuck with the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod. We have years of dope stuff, like hours and hours of episodes where we get raw, we get insane. I don't even edit them as much as I do these. Like, we, we get nuts on there. So, if you want to see us like unfiltered, baby, like a Paul Mall, go ahead and hop on that fucking Patreon. And people have said it rivals or exceeds our, our free feed. So, that's what they've said. That's what the tastemakers are saying. And join our Patreon, patreon.com slash the greatest pod. And thank you as always for listening to another episode of The Greatest Pod.